0: We're gonna read today from uh, chapter two in Acts. Stand, go ahead, yeah. (laughs) Up, down. I was raised Roman Catholic, so I'm used to this. No, No trouble whatsoever. From Acts chapter two. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native tongue? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this was what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy." I will show you wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the nation of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. You can stand, you can sit, we're Protestant, we can do whatever we want. It's so good to see you. Hey, last Sunday, a major milestone was reached here. Trinity Kids finished a three-year-long curriculum through the entirety of the scriptures, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, 156 weeks, 156 lessons. They did it. So if you are a kids volunteer if you have served in the kids' ministry in the last three years, would you stand up so we can just thank God for you and celebrate you? Stand up. Don't be shy. As a, as a pastor, I'm excited and grateful. As a dad, I'm incredibly excited and grateful that my boys have been able to to grow through this ministry. In addition to what we do at home, I'm thankful for Becca Hill and for the kids captains, for the kids volunteers, all of you. I'm so, so thankful for you. And you know what they're doing today? They did Revelation 22 last Sunday. Today, Genesis 1. Just run it back, baby. Do it again. 156 more Sundays of that goodness. And I think about it like this, we're looking at Acts chapter 2 today, this supernatural event where the, the Spirit falls, and, and sort of, I think of it as both a, a once-for-all time event as well as a pattern for our lives, that we should always be seeking the Spirit of God and, and the power of God to fill us. And, and my prayer is that that happens in, in my lifetime, in and through my ministry in this church, but if it doesn't happen, I pray that it happens through these kids, Right? in the next generation we often say that the church belongs to these children as much as it does to us adults and we deeply believe that and this is a a call on every one of us to to tell the next generation the mighty deeds of the lord as the psalmists say and that's not just a call for parents that's a call to every believer every member especially of this church it's our responsibility, our opportunity, our privilege to raise up our children in the good of the gospel, our young people in the gospel and in the spirit. And so if you're thinking, man, that sounds great. How do I get in on this goodness? I want to encourage you after church, if you haven't served in kids before, just swing by the kids wing, just see what they're doing, say thank you to the volunteers, meet some of the kids and ask how you can serve next Sunday. If you serve just one Sunday a month, I'm telling you, your spiritual life, everything, you know, I mean, if you're single, you might meet a spouse. I don't want to overpromise anything, but Trinity Kids want to encourage you. Just check it out and see what happens, okay? Let me pray for us and we'll dive into the text. Father, we thank you for everything that you're doing in our midst. We thank you for your incredible wonderful presence with us. You are so, so good. I pray that you would continue everything that you're doing, multiply everything that you're doing in this place. Lord Jesus, we open your word again and look to hear your voice. We know that you are alive. You are active in this world. You are still healing, still teaching, still showing your compassion. And so speak, Lord Jesus, through your word. And Holy Spirit of God, we are hungry for your presence. We are thirsty for your power. Come and fill us with all that you are. I pray if there's anybody here who is especially struggling or discouraged or overwhelmed, I pray that you would fill them with your peace, with the goodness of your presence, oh God. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you come now? Give us understanding. Give us softness of hearts, we pray. Amen. All right. Hey, Acts chapter 2. This is one of my all-time favorite passages. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of the scriptures to teach. We've looked at it, I think, four times. This is the fifth sermon out of Acts chapter 2. In the last four and a half years, we're probably just going to keep up that pace because we are seeing the formation of the early church, the, the falling of the Spirit. There is just so much to look at here. And, and today, really, all we're getting into is, is what we see in the coming of the Spirit, the giving of the Spirit for the first time, the formation of the church. We might look at the end of chapter 2 later again in this series, but we are praying that this chapter would just open our eyes once more to who the Spirit is and what he longs to do in our midst. And so we remember from from the Gospels and from Acts that Jesus did nothing until the Spirit of God came on him in his baptism. He did nothing in formal ministry until the Spirit of God descended on him. And he told his disciples uh, before he ascended back into heaven, don't do anything, rather wait until the Spirit of God comes. So he's saying, don't do anything until you have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit on you. Don't move an inch towards the Great Commission until you have received the Holy Spirit. And I can imagine the the disciples saying, well, well, how will we know, Lord? How do we know when the Spirit has come? And Jesus is like, don't worry. He likes to make an entrance. You will know. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to just draw out two principles from this passage, and then give us some encouragement, some application at the end. So the two principles are this, we are all Pentecostals, and I'll explain what that means in a moment, but we are all Pentecostals, and then number two, God comes where he's wanted. God comes where he's wanted. So first of all, we are all Pentecostals. And when I say that, you're probably thinking of the, uh, the group of churches associated with Pentecostalism, maybe Assemblies of God churches, churches that uh, identify themselves with Pentecost. Uh, it's a tradition that emphasizes praying in tongues and prophesying. At the Baptist seminary that I went to, a Pentecostal is what they would call somebody who didn't pass Greek on their first try. It's not a compliment. These worlds are kind of, you know, far apart. But we, we need to understand what Pentecost is. Is and in what sense we are Pentecostal Christians? Maybe with a, a lowercase p Pentecostal, but we are Pentecostal Christians, nonetheless. And this, I say this because the early, the original hearers of this this moment, the ones who were present when the Spirit of God fell, it was on the day of Pentecost, and that meant something to them. And they were Israelites, and so they understood that the significance of the Pentecost. It was a national holiday for them. It was a festival. The word Pentecost means 50th day. And this represents the the celebration of the famous story in Exodus where God provided an escape from Egypt. You remember they put the the blood of the firstborn male lamb over their doorposts. The, The angel of death passed over them. They were released out into the wilderness through the Red Sea and into safety. They journeyed through the wilderness and on the 50th day they reached Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where God descended in all of His presence and power and glory and beauty, and He made a promise with them, a covenant. And so Pentecost was a way of celebrating and remembering the presence and the promises of God. There was a second meaning that the Israelites took on with Pentecost, and it, was a, it became an agricultural holiday. This was an agrarian society. They all worked in agriculture. And so they celebrated at Pentecost the first fruits of the harvest. So if you are a farmer and those first fruits show up, whatever they are, whatever you're planted, the first little bits come through. If your entire life and family is dependent upon this crop, you are immensely thankful when those first fruits show up, right? Because that means the the rest of the harvest is is as good as here. We know that it's going to come because of the first fruits. And Israel understood themselves rightly, to be the first fruits of what God was doing in the world, that all nations eventually would come into the kingdom of God, beginning with Israel. And so that's where these these early believers were, these Israelite believers were. They were celebrating Pentecost. They had gathered together for, for prayer, for worship, and yet they were also hiding out because they were being persecuted. They were being hunted and chased by the religious leaders of that day. So at once, they're, they're terrified, they're fearful, and they're, they're hopeful. And when you put those two things together, what we see is that they were desperate. They didn't know what to do. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit. They were confused. They were overwhelmed. They were threatened. And so they are desperate for something, however small, a word from the Lord, some kind of something that might encourage them a little bit. And it's in that moment, they're in one place, and God shows up. It says in verse 1, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so the Holy Spirit descends, and now Pentecost takes on a whole new meaning for us as Christians. It still calls us to remember God's presence, still calls us to remember His promises, but now it means something more. It means that the church is the new place of God. It is the new Israel. It is the new temple. It is the primary dwelling place of the presence of God. That's what the tabernacle was, that's what the temple was. Now the presence of God, the Spirit of God descends, fills these believers, and they are the new temples. We together are the temple of the living God. And so in this sense, all believers from this moment forward are living in a post-Pentecost world. We are living in a world where the Spirit has come and continues to come. We are post-Pentecost or little p Pentecostal Christians. That's why I say we are all Pentecostals. This is an identity that we can and must embrace. It is a beautiful thing about who we are as believers. All believers have this event of Pentecost in common. It's what, it's what brings us together. It's what empowers us still. And so I, I hope you caught what, is, what has happened because the last two weeks we looked at Jesus' some of his final words while he was on earth, John 14, 15, and 16. And so there's, there's this thing that happens. Jesus, in all of his power and glory, ascends into heaven, and then the Holy Spirit, in all of his power and glory, descends down to earth. Jesus, the power of God embodied in a single human being, goes up, and in the Son of God, the power of God for every single human being who believes, comes down. Not more than a few moments goes by, Without Jesus fulfilling his promise to be with his disciples, to send his promised spirit of truth. and So you can see all of these Old Testament parallels. Pentecost originally celebrated Moses going up on the mountain and down comes the law of God. But the second Pentecost is this. Jesus goes up into heaven and down comes a new sort of law. A law that is written on our hearts, the very spirit of God. It's what Ezekiel and the prophets had foretold, that this new law would come, but rather than just being a written law, it's a personal, intimate, abiding union with God written on our hearts. Now, as we go on, verse 5 says, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And so these are, are people who are Believers in the God of Israel. They are Jews by religion, but not by ethnicity. So they are not Israelites, but they have put their faith in the God of Israel. And it says, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now, the, the word for language here is also translated tongues. It's the Greek word colossal, which can either mean your your physical, literal tongue. It can mean languages. It can mean dialect. It can mean spiritual tongues, as it does in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm not going to spend really any time on the tongues and languages here, because we're going to do it later in the series. If you're a little bit relieved, we're still going to get to it. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you when the tongue sermon is coming, so we don't lose anybody. You're just going to show up, and you're going to just be confronted lovingly with it. But what we see in Acts 2 is that these languages are not the same tongues that I believe show up in 1 Corinthians 14, which is a, a sort of heavenly spiritual prayer language, but rather these are languages that were understood by all of these other nationalities and ethnicities that have come together. They're literally speaking human languages that they don't understand, but all of these people are hearing the wonders of God being proclaimed in their own language And so it is still a miraculous, powerful movement of God in fulfillment of what Jesus had said in Mark 16, that new languages would be spoken as a testimony to the power of His resurrection. Now, there's one more Old Testament parallel that I want you to see here, and it is so significant. Because in Genesis 11, mankind comes together... They're, they're united by this common desire to glorify themselves for all of time, they're, their desire to make their name great, and they come up with this idea to build a tower in Babel. And so when God sees this, and, and, and really it's his mercy to come down and frustrate their plans, and he, he confuses all of their languages, he, he gives them all different languages, and the work goes unfinished. Acts 2, this moment of Pentecost, is a type of reversal of the Tower of Babel. Think about it, God comes down, but in our passage, He doesn't confuse their languages, He, he brings clarity to languages. Instead of it being a, a bunch of different people coming together to, to do something apart from God, now it is a bunch of different people coming together, being unified, and God is going to work through them. There's confusion and there's chaos in our passage. Dozens of languages are spoken, but the people are not divided. They become unified. And we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, when God comes down, it's to unite people. When new languages are spoken, it's to demonstrate salvation coming to all nations. And instead of building a monument to their name, these people go and they take the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. This is how the first church begins. It's a clear, definitive start to a new era. The the old has gone, the new is here. The the first fruits are are on the vine, and the harvest is coming. And Paul explains that this was foretold by the prophet Joel. In verse 17, he says, in the last days, quoting Joel 2, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want you to to feel this for a minute. That Joel's prophecy from 3,000 years ago that God's Spirit would be poured out. And the message of Pentecost 2,000 years ago is now being fulfilled in the church every time it gathers for worship and prayer and teaching. 3,000 years of a promise from God is being fulfilled right now in us just gathering together to praise and worship God in a place far, far removed from Israel. When you feel how significant it is that God's promises are being fulfilled even now in and through us. I mean, like, I don't feel like the fulfillment of promises, like, ever. And I don't know if you feel the same way. It feels very, very ordinary to just be here. I know how hard it is just to get to church on Sunday. You're not thinking, I'm so glad I'm fulfilling a 2,800-year-old prophecy by my presence in church this morning. But you are. We are not waiting for the season of God's harvest. We are the season of God's harvest. We are not the first fruits. We are the harvest. We are the pouring out of God's Spirit on all nations. It's happening right now in and through us. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That would have been unbelievable in the first century. And for us, it's part of our call and our mission. And so this is the first thing. Jesus goes up, the spirit comes down. It's a, it's a once-for-all-time moment in redemptive history. We're all Pentecostals now, lowercase p. But it's also a pattern, a pattern for how we can seek God today. And that's the second principle. God comes where he's wanted. So our passage begins, as I said, with, with the church in hiding, but they're hungry. They're desperate. They're, they're keeping this Hebrew tradition of gathering for prayer daily, so they're, they're in one place. They're seeking God's face. They're seeking His help and His wisdom. They probably didn't expect quite as strong of an answer as what they got, but they were desperate. And man, desperation is such a good place to be spiritually. To be desperate is one of the best places you can be spiritually. To be at the end of your line, to not know what to do next, where to go next, that desperation, that is the good stuff. That is where God loves to show up. When we seek Him in our desperation, amazing things follow. And so the Holy Spirit, like a mighty rushing wind, falls on His disciples, the place shakes people are overwhelmed with God's glory, languages are spoken, other people just laugh, but this is how Jesus starts his church. Not with a a class or a study or a seminar or a vision campaign or fundraising. I mean, only Jesus starts a church without a little bit of funding, you know? Amazing. If you're a church planner, you're like, how did he do it? Only Jesus. No fundraising. It's incredible. Jesus starts his church in a moment with power. 120 people filled with the Holy Spirit go out into the city, and within 30 years, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people are following Christ on three different continents. In one lifetime, the entire world is actually changed. There's a lot of talk about changing the world. It's probably only happened once in anybody's lifetime, and it was here, the first 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. And so, in what sense is this a pattern for us? There's a pastor that I follow, John Tyson. He's in New York City. He preached a few weeks ago, and he described a trip that he took with his family to visit about a dozen places around the world where revival had broken out throughout history. That's my kind of vacation. I can't wait to do it one day, but he said, when I came back, everybody asked, did you find it? Yeah, I did. Lean in, I'll tell you. I'll say it to you in one sentence. God comes where he's wanted. Hunger is the secret to revival, whether Calvinist or Arminian high church or low church. When a church gets hungry, God shows up. God comes where he's wanted. Man, I love that phrase so, so much. We said in the first week that there are word churches and there are spirit churches, and, and word churches love to talk about how God works through process. He works in a slow, ordinary, you know, somewhat predictable way in our lives, and that is absolutely true. And I'm so thankful for the ways that the Lord has worked through process in my life and in all of your lives and the life of this church. On the other hand, spirit churches love to talk not about process, but about breakthrough. That God shows up in, in a moment and it's sudden and surprising. There's, there's a breakthrough. And to that we also say yes and amen. God works through process and sometimes God works through breakthrough processes is the ordinary way of God doing things, but every now and then, just when you think that you've got God figured out, he shows up through some kind of unbelievable breakthrough. One of my my favorite things is that we never know how God is going to show up in our lives. I think about it like this, in, in the Old Testament, Elijah is fleeing for his life, he's, he's being hunted down, and he's starving, he's alone, he's about to die, and he prays out to God that God would just take his life. I mean, that is, a, that is a, you know, a dark place to be. And this is Elijah, by the way, like one of the heroes. He's praying that God would take his life. God appears to him as an angel, gives him something to eat. Tells him to take a nap. When Elijah is finally ready and has the capacity, God comes to him in a whisper. Encourages him. Comforts him. Now think about Job. Job is suffering in an absolutely horrible way. He has lost everything. And when he's finally at the end of his line, he, he cries out to God and he cries out against God. And God shows up to him as a hurricane. A hurricane speaks to Job out of an actual hurricane. And this is the thing. Sometimes we need the whisper. Sometimes we need the hurricane. Sometimes we want the whisper and we get the hurricane. Sometimes we want the hurricane and we get the whisper. Let's go New Testament. At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. If it was up to me, I wouldn't choose dove. Like softest, gentlest animal of all time. Like the dove, really, Spirit of God, descends as a soft, gentle dove. At Pentecost, the Spirit of God descends as fire and as an earthquake. And, and it's God. The God the Spirit is the dove. God the Spirit is the earthquake. Sometimes you want the dove, and you get the earthquake. Sometimes you want the earthquake and you get the dove. But the spirit is both. In the same way that Jesus is the lion and the lamb and, and just the, the breadth of, of who he is causes us to worship him, it is the same with the spirit. He is the dove and he is the earthquake. He is the whisper and he is the hurricane. We need both. It's maybe another way of saying that God works through process and God works through breakthrough. And so, God comes where He's wanted. How do we cultivate a life where God wants to come? How do we cultivate that that wanting in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own churches, so that it's a place where God wants to come, wants to show up, wants to break through? I want to give you four things. And the first one is simply to spend time personally in the presence of God. Spend time personally in the presence of God. I think it's, it's like any human relationship. You can take marriage as an example. Even if you're not married, this will make sense. In marriage, sometimes you feel so closely connected. Other times you feel a little bit disconnected. When you're feeling less connected, it doesn't mean you're not married. You're married just as much as you are, whether you, you feel like it or you feel a little bit distant. It's the same with the Spirit of God. We are having believed in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit of God, but sometimes we feel at a distance. In marriage, what do you do when you're feeling distant? You draw near. You, you carve out some time. I mean, unhurried, intentional time to just be together, to rekindle the flame, to get acquainted with one another again. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. If For you, if you're feeling a little distant, a little dry, that is completely normal. It is part of the process, but God is just inviting you back to himself, saying, let's reconnect, draw near, clear some space, spend time personally in the presence of God. I know that hearing a message on God's Spirit coming with power and revival breaking out, it can be a little discouraging based on where you are right now. Like for some of you, this is the message you've been waiting for for years. You're like, bring me the Pentecost message. Others of you are like, pastor, I am just trying to survive. This feels so out of touch. It feels insensitive because I'm just trying to get through my day, pay for my groceries, keep my marriage, uh, you know, alive. And I, I totally understand. And I get that it can, it can feel totally overwhelming to think about something this big. But if I could just encourage you from my own life, I get stuck in my head so often. I've said a number of times that I wrestle with depression and have for about two decades. I struggle with doubt. I can be super fleshy, just like sinny. And the quiet and contemplative, that inner work, is so, so good for me. It's become my, my kind of default reaction to draw close to God in in quiet moments, but I can also get stuck there, and I I can stay stuck there, still in my head, still in like a vortex of thinking and feeling, and it's so hard to get out of it. So what I've begun to do is like basically put on gospel music. I mean like Sunday service. Anybody some Sunday service? If you haven't listened, it's Kanye's thing, but it's not Kanye, it's Sunday service. It's a gospel choir, and it's fantastic. Kirk Franklin, Mav City, put on some gospel music and praise God. And it is unbelievable how my heart and my mind catch up. If I'm at home and I'm alone and I can raise my hands or like spread out on the ground, I'll do it and just try to praise God until I can feel his presence again. I still do the quiet and contemplative stuff. I have a spiritual director. I have a counselor. You can pray for them both. But sometimes I just need to get out of my own head and asking for more of the Holy Spirit is so, so helpful for me. And so spend time personally in the presence of God. Here's number two, cling to the gospel. I mean, cling to the gospel with all of your life. You notice what Peter does when the Spirit falls and like a crowd gathers. I mean, it's like the most supernatural moment in the New Testament. He doesn't start just speaking in tongues. He doesn't prophesy. He sees an opportunity, and he knows what to do. He preaches the gospel. These are people that do not know or have not fully grasped the message of Jesus Christ. So this is what he says, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. I mean, this is, I think, what, 50 days after his resurrection, And so these people were on earth for the last three years. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've been on the fence about whether or not he's the actual son of God. And he says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter sees an opportunity and he preaches with with all he's got. It goes on like for another 18 verses. We didn't include it in the reading, but he just preaches everything he can think to preach. And man, this is who we want to be. We want to be a gospel-centered and a spirit-filled church a people and a church that cling to the gospel. Jesus crucified and resurrected and relentlessly pursuing the presence of God. Those are, two, those are not two totally separate things that, that we can't do at the same time, but rather we cling to the gospel and experience the presence of God together. Now here's the third thing. Follow the Spirit in the church. And so the first one is more just personal, what to do in in your own home, in your own life. The third one is in the church. What do we do together? Follow the Spirit. A.W. Tozer was a preacher and a writer, maybe around 1950, and he said if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop. And everyone would know the difference. Or as Bono put it from you 2 for the 30-plus crowd, religion is what happens when the Spirit has left the building. And so think about our, our churches. How long would they keep churning and building and growing and doing all the things that they do if the Spirit left? Thankfully, it's not, it's not going to happen. The Spirit's not going to leave But how long would it take us to notice? If he left my life, how long would it take to notice? We often use this phrase, come Holy Spirit, and it's called the Epiclesis prayer, an old Greek word. It's typically used at at communion. But some people might say, and they've said often, why do you say come Holy Spirit if, if the Spirit is already within you and among you? And the answer is because we want more of him. Because we see throughout the Psalms, people crying out for more of the living God. We see in Isaiah, rend the heavens and come down. We see people that are hungry and dissatisfied until they get more of God's presence. And that's right where we want to be. And so with the 2,000 years of church history, we pray, come Holy Spirit. And so whatever your role is in the church, I want to encourage you, whether it's serving in Trinity Kids or doing hospitality or just participating in community group, whatever it is, you can probably do a lot of it in your own strength, in your own energy, with your own intellect. You're a, you're a smart group. You can do a lot on your own. But every time you step into that opportunity, say, come Holy Spirit. Everything I do is powerless apart from you. I can do all the activities, but it won't have spiritual power and significance apart from your presence, O oh Lord. Come Holy Spirit. Now here's the last thing, number four. Pray for revival. Just get right to it. Just pray for revival. I had it prefaced in all these different ways. I just like, just pray for revival. I'll say what I mean in a moment. There was an old revivalist named Samuel Chadwick. If your name is Samuel Chadwick, immediately you become an old revivalist. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. He fears nothing from our prayerless studies prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. My prayer for this church is that we don't just do a bunch of stuff. We don't just get busy with all the church stuff and then forget why we're even doing it, for whom we're doing it, who is within us as we do it. But I want to be the kind of people that that are not just open to the Spirit, but are longing for more of the Spirit's work in our midst. My favorite definition of revival comes from Tim Keller. He says, it's a season in which the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel, evangelism, conversion, church planting, are intensified manyfold. And so revival is not necessarily something totally different than what the church is always doing. It's the intensification or multiplication of what the church is always doing. It's not something totally radically different or a whole new set of of practices and things, but rather it is the Spirit of God coming down and multiplying everything that we're doing so that it has a profound, exponential, unexplainable in human terms type of impact. That is what I long to see so, so much. We're seeing little seeds and, and, and bits of it here and there in this church and in this city. And I want to just cultivate and steward that as much as possible. But it's true that while revival is an intensification of what we're already doing. There's an element of every revival where it becomes somewhat out of control of the people, that it's just a movement of God and you don't really know what's going to happen. Sam Storms, one of my favorite authors, he says, our tendency is to pray for revival because we think that's the religious thing to do. Only later to say, after revival has come, oh my, this is not what I had in mind. We say we want revival, but on our terms. We don't pray that way, but this is what our hearts are saying to God. Come Holy Spirit, but only if you promise in advance to do the things as we have always done them. Come Holy Spirit, but only if when you show up, you won't embarrass me. Come Holy Spirit, but only if your work of revival is one I can still control. Come Holy Spirit, but only if your work of revival is neat and tidy and dignified and most of all socially acceptable. Come Holy Spirit, but only if you change others and make them more like me. Now listen, nobody loves control in reasonableness more than me. I went to bed at 8.15 last night. I sleep in a button-down shirt. This is what I wear to bed. <laughs> if somebody breaks in at night, I want to look still like kind of semi-professional. But listen, I don't want to live in fear of what God could do or wants to do. I don't want to minimize or block or quench what God might want to do in this congregation. We won't experience another Pentecost exactly like the first one, but we can live every day as truly Pentecostal Christians with the power and the presence of Pentecost within us. We can be the kind of people in which God knows he's wanted. We can be the kind of church where God knows he's wanted. If you were in a desert, a dry and parched land, as Psalm 63 puts it, and yet you knew where water could be found, wouldn't you go? If you knew where the water was, wouldn't you you draw near? Wouldn't you go to that place? Wouldn't you leave the dry place and get as close to the water as you possibly could? The Spirit has come. His presence is among us. His power is with us. He is continuing the work of Jesus in us and through us. And we have this promise now being fulfilled among us. I will pour out my spirit on all people and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, again, all we can say is you are so, so good to us. We don't deserve it. We certainly have not earned it. You've set your love, your affection on us simply as a way of showing the world who you are. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would cling to your cross, that we would be a people who are are quick to confess our sins, quick to repent, quick to put our faith back in you, Lord. Trust that Where you have lowered us, you will raise us up in due time. Spirit of God, we long to feel you in all your fullness. We confess where we have had a role in minimizing you in the past, and we say, forgive us, restore us, renew, and refresh us in who you are, O Spirit. Protect us from from the errors and mistakes that others have made in the past, and protect us from fear and not trying to seek you at all. Lord, I am so, so thankful for this church. What a joy and a blessing it is to be a part of it. Lord, once again, I just thank you for sparing uh, our friend Trinity's life and that she is healing and she is recovering. I don't know if that's an all-out miracle or, or what, but I'm going to just chalk it up as one. God, thank you. Thank you for her. Thank you that you've brought each of us safely here. God, we just want more of you. We want to know you as you are. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to seek your face in prayer. We want to serve one another. We want to reach the nations for you. But God, none of it is possible without your presence. And so fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fall afresh on us as we're about to sing. Come, Lord, we need you. Amen.